My name is Josh. If you're a guest this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us for the beginning of a series that we're entitling A Time to Build. We're looking at the historic moments surrounding the book that we call the book of Nehemiah. And we'll talk about the history here in a moment uh, and its significance for us as a church because we've been asked a whole lot of questions over the course of the past few weeks and months as you have experienced questions such as, hey, what's next as a church? Hey, we're coming out of COVID. What's next? Well, before we can talk about what's next, we've got to kind of do a little bit of background work to figure out what has already happened. And I kind of want to take you back first to our, our moment of history as a church about 13 years ago. In 2008, we built and moved into this building that we are worshiping in today. We had been on the other side of 153 in a building there, and we moved here. And when we moved, we also took on the name Clear Creek. It was the Hickson Church of Christ, and then we took on the name the Clear Creek Church of Christ. So although the name has changed, the years of faithful service to the Lord and love for one another continued. And we then asked this very important question, and this is the question that we're going to be asking over the next few weeks together, eight to be exact. You're like, how long are we going to do this series? Eight weeks, okay. And here's the question. What's next? See, that's the question that the leadership asked when we moved in here. And really, over the past decade, that has become, although maybe not always articulated with those two words, that has always been this ongoing question. What's next, Lord? What's next? And because of the answers to the question, what's next, we began to see some things in our church and in our city. And today, you see the results of those what next questions. I'll give you a few examples. We asked the Lord, what next? And he began to reveal to us that there are women who need rescued off of the streets of our city who are being exploited and used. And so we partnered with Cry for the Broken to help rescue sisters who need to know Jesus and to know someone loves them. We said, God, what's next? And he called us to help those who were being victimized, whether through human trafficking or other issues. And so now we have partnered with Blazing Hope Ranch, and we've done so for some time. And we said, God, what's next? And he began to reveal to us the at-risk children in our city and those who are not resourced in our city. And we've partnered with Inner City Ministries and Bethel Bible, Bible Village. And we ask God, what's, what's next, Lord? And he has continued to reveal to us needs around the city. And so we planted a church in the downtown area of Chattanooga. We say, God, what is next? And the result of what's next is one of the reasons or some of the reasons why many of you are here today. Because the leadership of this church, long before I ever got here and long before many of us were ever here, ask God, what's next? And so we ask God, what's next? And now we gather, and and by God's grace, we've always had good worship, but I I pray that we continue to have a more robust, spirit-filled, open-to-the-presence-of-God worship experience, and we are more expressive in this space. Now, we don't lose the head when we get the heart, but hopefully we have both. Now, 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 I know, I know. I say expressive, and if you grew up in maybe a little bit more colorful church background, Pentecostal, or pretty much any other brand, you watch us and you're like, this is expressive. We're like, yeah, I know, baby steps, baby steps. Just bear with us, okay? And the reason that right now we have kids in We Worship, and the reason that an hour before this gathering, many of your kids were being taught the Word of God, that's a result of what next? How do we raise the next generation to love God, to follow Jesus ferociously? 
so that when they leave this place, they are prepared to be disciples no matter what the world may throw at them. Show of hands, how many of you parents desperately want your children to love Jesus more after they leave than they do even today? Anyone else want that for their children? And so we're working as hard as we can out of a what next response to God. And so where we're going is the result of what next questions that we've been pursuing, not because of COVID, but long before COVID. And so over the course of these next eight weeks, we're going to walk you through and talk about where we believe God is leading us very specifically as a church. Now, let me give you a little bit of disclaimer. This week and next, we've got to do some background work And then in weeks three and four, we're going to roll out and explain what does ministry look like here at Clear Creek? How will you be involved? What will will we be calling one another into? And then weeks, uh, what is it, five, six, seven, and eight will be basically a lot more of the nitty gritty and some of the specifics. You don't want to miss this. In fact, I'm going to ask you. If you miss one Sunday, will you go back and watch it on YouTube or listen to it? By the way, that's a great way to do my sermons because you can do it at two times the speed and get through it in half the time. Can I get an oh yeah from anyone? There you go. Look, I know what you like, so we'll just keep it going. Here we go. So eight weeks, we're going to walk through this. But here's, here's the thing. I'm so excited about this text of Nehemiah because it overlays beautifully with what God is doing in the heart's of so many of you in this church already. And so we're going to look at this moment of a time to build through the lens of Nehemiah's moment in history. And we're going to do that beginning in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm also going to ask you during the course of these weeks and after, bring your Bibles. Yes, they'll be on screen. Bring your Bible. If you do not have a Bible of your own, you find me, I will get you a Bible. We will get you Bibles, okay? But bring your Bible, because we want the Word of God to be central to what we do here as a church. Again, can I get an oh yeah from anyone there? Okay. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. By the way, you need to come just because you're going to have to listen to your preacher suffer through a lot of names that have not been used in almost three centuries. And it's going to be painful and fun. So come, watch. Okay. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev. Remember that because that's going to be important later. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Susa is in Persia. It is a capital place, uh, possibly a winter palace home for King Artaxerxes of Persia. While there, Hananiah, one of my brothers, the brother of Nehemiah, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that had survived the exile and also about the city of Jerusalem. So let me just give you a little context here. We need to go back in time to make sense of this. By the way, Nehemiah, if you look in your Bibles... It is in like the middle of the Older Testament. You've got Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament is everything before Jesus. New Testament is Jesus, life, death, burial, resurrection, and the church for about the next 70 years. Old Testament before Jesus, New Testament is Jesus, and after. But Nehemiah sits about halfway in the Old Testament. But here's what you need to know. Historically, the events in Nehemiah are some of the last events in the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence, and then Jesus is born. So these events are happening at the very 
end of the Old Testament. You say, why are they in the middle of the Bible and Old Testament if they're at the end of the Old Testament? It's because our Old Testament is organized by genre. Uh, like books are categorized together. We can talk about that more later, but that's why it's there. Now, there's a man named Nehemiah, and, and, and stay here, but Nehemiah, the name Nehemiah means God comforts. Quick question. Does anyone need some comfort this morning? Let me ask more broadly. Does the city need God's comfort this morning? Have you watched the news lately? Have you seen what's going on? Some of you don't even have to turn on the news to know what our city needs, the issues facing, not even across the street or across the city, but maybe in our own backyards. And so the Lord comes and this moment happens here in this capital of Persia, in Susa. Roughly in the year 446 or 445 B.C., you say, why is it somewhere in between there? It's because the way their years work, it overlaps between our years as well. And something happens. Now, let me give you context here. Why is Nehemiah in a pagan capital city? To answer that, you've got to go back to Exodus. The Israelites are in captivity in Egypt. And then God hears the cries of the people. He sends Moses to the Israelites to liberate them from captivity. Moses, and we say this all the time, but Moses, who also goes by the name Charlton Heston, he shows up, let my people go, Red Sea, they cross through, they come to the promised land. On the eve of entering, the people disbelieve God's power to deliver them through, and so God allows a generation to die before bringing them into the promised land. Pause right there. Isn't it interesting that a whole generation may miss out on God's blessing because that generation does not trust God can do what he promises to do? The new generation comes. Moses has died. The next in command rises up. His name is Joshua. The people go into Israel. By the way, do you remember where we began our teaching this year? In Joshua. Take the land. By the way, everything we've done all year has been leading to where we are coming today and where we'll go through the rest of the year. And so they settle the land. But as the people begin to look around, they begin to see that they look different than the rest of the nations. Again, pause. Isn't it interesting that when you come into a new place and you do not know who you are before you enter, you will find your identity in the people around you. Be careful where you look for who you are. They say, we want a king like all the other nations. And God says, I am your king. They say, yeah, but we'd like a king that we can see. And God says, no, you really don't. They say, yes, we do. He says, okay, I'll give you the king you think you want. And he gives them the king, Saul. Everybody say Saul. Saul was the, you know, he was the man of men. He was a foot taller, a head taller than everyone else. He had like muscles popping out of his turtleneck. Women wanted to be with him. Men wanted to be him. He was a great hunter, a great charismatic figure, and he had wonderful victories and began to lead Israel well until he faced a crisis of integrity and fell. Again, if you don't know who you are, then when the life around you, the world around you squeezes, what's in you will come out, and he fell. And God took away the kingdom from Saul and gave it into the hands of a new king, a shepherd boy who writes poetry named David. David, this warrior, pushes out the enemies of Israel, and there's this 
peace that now reigns in Israel. David, as part of his job, centers and liberates the city called Jerusalem, the city of peace. And it becomes the hub, the center for all of the Hebrew peace people. It was the place where God's presence dwelt and it was the symbol that God was with her or his people, the Israelites. David dies, has a son named Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man who ever lives. The, 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 the nation grows. He establishes the temple. Things get better. But as he's about to die, he begins to recognize things may not be so good for the future of Israel. You get hints of this when you read his book, Ecclesiastes. It's all about life and how to live life well. And you get the hints that he recognizes the future may not be so good because he writes things like, What does it matter to life and to you if you are rich and brilliant, but you only have morons for kids? And he says, that's where I'm leaving things. He dies. And you begin to see a power struggle, and the nation of Israel is destroyed. It is separated into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, ten tribes, the southern kingdom, two tribes. Now, let me give this explanation. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. Hang with me. We're almost done with the history lesson. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. This would be like if the civil war had been won by the south, and the north had one name, and the south took on a different name. That's basically what happens. The north... Israel is a complete train wreck of wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And the people of Israel follow suit until finally in the year 722 B.C. God says, I've had enough. And he sends the Assyrian nation in and they spank Israel on God's behalf. Sack the cities, exile the people throughout the Assyrian nation. And because of their wickedness, those ten tribes never come back home. That's why to this day, those ten tribes are called the lost tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom, though, lasts a little bit longer. After all, the south seems to just do better in all sorts of ways. And so the southern kingdom lasts over a hundred years longer. They have good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. But eventually the wickedness grows to the point that God says, I've had enough. And now the new world superpower, the Babylonians, come in and they spank Judah on God's behalf. They destroy the city of Jerusalem, the symbol of God's presence, God's power, God's peace. Exile the people throughout Babylonian captivity. This is where we learn of people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This is where we learn about so many of the exiles. And they are in exile for a number of years until the Babylonian Empire fades and a new empire, the Persians, come to, to rule and reign. And the king, Cyrus, led by the Holy Spirit, pressed by God, because how many of us know that God can use anyone to fulfill his purposes inspires him to send back a remnant of the exiled Jews to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And he sends a man named Ezra, Bible scholars, are you recognizing some names here, to help rebuild the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah are happening around the same time. Ezra builds the temple, Nehemiah, the city walls. They are contemporaries. In fact, some of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts have both of the books together because they happen so closely. So now you come to the point here. The Israelites are still spread out. Some have gone home. And Nehemiah, a man who's never been to Jerusalem, 
asks his brother, who's just returned from there, and says, tell me about our ancestral home. How are things going? What's happening? Well, here's a picture for you. You guys like pictures? There's a little context. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Susa. This is where Nehemiah is working, as we'll find out, the king's cupbearer. By the way, great gig until it isn't. You say, how's that? The cupbearer would drink the wine of the king before the king drank the wine. You say, wow, I like that. That sounds great. It's not that cheap box stuff you guys hide when other Christians come over to your house. It's a good stuff. It's got the vintage. It's everything. And he would drink it before the king because the king had enemies. And one of the ways to kill the king is to poison the king. So great gig, lots of wine until you drink a bad cup and then all over. Next cupbearer. We're going to talk more about that role next week. But he is cupbearer to the king and he hears from 800 miles away about his people. And this is what it says in verse 3. Then he said, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Why disgrace? Because again, the city was symbolic of God's power, God's presence, God's peace. And if the city stood, so did God in people's eyes. But if the city fell to the surrounding nations, it looked as though the God of the Hebrews had fallen as well. So it's not just trouble, but it is disgrace. Now you say, why are they in trouble? In the ancient world, what you need to understand, because we don't use walls the way they did. We don't have a big wall around the city of Chattanooga. But they had a wall around every major city. In the ancient world, walls were more important for defense than even the standing army. Because without a wall, you could not control the, who came in and out of the city. And so bandits could come in, robbers could come in, and they could steal, kill, and pillage with impunity. A city without walls would fall apart. This is why the Proverbs writer will say, A man who lacks self-control is like a city whose walls have been torn down. That without walls to protect, the city will fall. And by the way, we know this from history. Do you know the two groups of people who suffer first and most when a city has walls that are torn down? The women and the children. The women and the next generation. This means that for the city to flourish, for the next generation to thrive, walls are essential to a city. And he says, what's going on? They say it's fallen down the walls of Jerusalem. It's broken. Its gates have been burned with fire. Now, I want to ask you a quick question, church. We live in a city without a big physical wall, but don't you dare for one moment believe that we live in a city without walls. We have a city full of walls. You put up walls all the time around you to protect yourself, don't you? You have a financial wall, correct? You have savings, you have investments, uh, and maybe you're trying to pay off your debt so that way you can begin doing those things. Why? So you have a wall or a barrier between yourself and poverty. We have health barriers. That's why we have health insurance, why we go see doctors sometimes. That's why we take care of ourselves with what we eat or what we exercise, or at least that's what we tell our friends, right? So there's health barrier. There's relationship barriers as well. We put them on our computers to protect us from seeing things we shouldn't and protect our hearts and our relationships, don't we? We protect ourselves relationally by not getting into flirtatious relationships with people who are not our spouses. And if we're not married, we do not flirt with others 
if we don't have intentions of actually pursuing an ongoing godly relationship with them. By the way, I know this is going to sound sexist, but young ladies, listen to me for a minute here. If you ever have a young man who is flirting with you, but has no interest in pursuing your heart, and who is not personally pursuing Jesus, you know what? here's what you do. You ask him, what is your intention with me? He'll either, either stand up, man up, and say, well, baby, I think you're awesome. Let's love Jesus together. And you say, praise God. Or he will be the coward that he is proving himself to be and run away. But don't you dare pursue a man who's not pursuing God's heart and willing to pursue you, not just play with you. Come on, parents. So we're in a city with walls that are falling down. I don't have to tell you that we live in a country that has walls falling down. You may try to erect these walls, but they are falling down. We live in a world of broken walls. The opioid epidemic in our city continues to increase. I have first responder friends who constantly tell me about the situations they roll up into that are heartbreaking. We have women and children who are being physically assaulted and abused in our city on a regular basis. That should break our hearts, church. We have children who are in the foster care system, more in the system than homes willing or wanting to take care of these children. We have broken walls in our city. And if you look over the past 20 years in our nation, and this is reflected in our city as well. By the way, did you know we live in a great city? We do, don't we? I love China. By the way. I told you last week, we had a whole week without kids. (laughs) It was great. We love you guys. We do. And we're glad you're back. But we had a great week. Lindsay and I, we got to look around the city. We went paddle boarding down the Tennessee River. We looked in some caves. We, we, we bike. We biked around places. We walked. We ate great food. It's great. See, we love the city. We love the city. But our city has broken walls. We have marriages that are hanging on by a thread and spouses too proud to say anything about it and get help. We have churches that are emptying and not just people sitting, but we have the hearts of the people empty before the seats. You understand that's how that works, right? It starts in the heart and then is reflected in the seats. We are in a city full of broken walls. I need you to understand, before we talk about what's next, we have to address what's now. What's happening in our city? And I want to tell you, there's a lot of responses, a lot of ways. By the way, if you're a guest, you go, what does this have to do with me? I'm going to show you something. If you will listen, write this down. I'm going to show you something from Scripture. These are five ways we typically respond to problems when we face them. And none of these will fix what you're facing. It doesn't matter if it's the city or your home. It doesn't matter if it's your finances or your health. Doesn't matter if it's your marriage, your dating relationship, your kids, your school, whatever it is. These five are common, but they will not fix the problem. And then I'm going to show you what will, but let's start with five that don't. Here are the five most common ways we address problems when we face them. Number one, we deny it. We deny it, don't we? Oh, it's not that bad. It's not really as big of an issue as you think it is. Surely it can't be that bad. I remember 9-11-2001. I was in my dorm room at Lipscomb University. Yes, I am still a very young man. Thank you. Thank you. And I get a call from a friend saying a plane just hit the, one of the trade towers. And my first thought was, I can't be that bad. Can't be. The default setting for many of us is denial. It can't be that bad. 
And if it's not denial, the next one is going to be we ignore the problem, don't we? It's like when you are concerned about your health, but you're scared. So what do you do? I'll see the doctor next year. (laughs) I'll go check it out later. We ignore it and it's I don't know about the problem. Or maybe I don't want to know. So we deny it's not that bad. Or I don't want to know. It's ignoring it. Number three is maybe it's apathy. Some of us, we know it's there. We just don't care. Because it doesn't affect us. By the way, one of the challenges, and Jesus speaks to this, of being wealthy or having great resources, the more you have, the easier it is to insulate you from the issues around you. We are a city and a country of garage doors and back porches. We don't have to know what anyone else is going through, do we? And one of the worst things facing the church today is not denial or ignorance. It's apathy where we say, I don't care because it doesn't affect me. By the way, I love what one professor, he was teaching a class of students and he asked the question, said, hey, what is the worst thing facing us? Is it ignorance or apathy? And a student stood up and said, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) That's a lot of us, isn't it? Fourth one is blame. Hey, if we're not going to deny, if we're not going to ignore, if we're not going to feel apathetic, we just blame the other person. Well, they caused the problem. By the way, this is toxic to every relationship in jeopardy today. Because if I blame someone else, that means I have no responsibility because I can't fix or change you. So it's not my fault and I can't fix anything. And then the fifth one, if none of these, it's going to be hopelessness. Hopeless. The problem is just too big. Josh, I'm not denying it. It's terrible. I'm not ignorant of the situation. I see the facts. I'm I'm not apathetic. I hurt for what's happening. I'm not blaming people for where they're at and what's going on, but it's just too big. Now, here's the reality. Whether it's a relationship, finances, health, anything, or the spiritual life, if you respond with any one of these five, it may make you feel better, but it will not Fix the problem. So I want to show you what will. Ready? Verse 4. How does Nehemiah do it? Because he gives us a model. He says this. When I heard these things about the city that I have never been to, but the broken walls and the burnt gates, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I mourned, I fasted and prayed. In other words, the only thing that will change what you're facing is broken hearts and bowed heads. Broken hearts and bowed heads. My heart is broken and our heads go to the floor saying, God, help us. The only thing before we say what's next is to say, God, help us. In your marriage, the only thing before you do anything else is say, God, help me. In your raising of children, saying, oh God, help me. In your neighborhood, it's God, help me. With your financial issues and perhaps the the issues of the heart that you spend more than you have because you're trying to keep up with others, it's, oh God, help what's going on in here. Yes, I need more, but I need help here. It's broken hearts and bowed heads. Nehemiah responded in the one way that has the potential for a positive change. Wise Christ followers do this. I say wise Christ followers because this is exactly what Jesus Christ does as well. It's not just Nehemiah. By the way, Nehemiah, good guy, but he is not the hero of the text. God is. You'll see that throughout the pages. 
And what he does is what Jesus does two times and more in the New Testament. Let me give you two examples. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus sees a crowd of people. Put this on screen. And when he sees the crowd, he has, notice this word, compassion. Everybody say, compassion. It's the word, usplanknon. You remember that word? It means bowels. He felt something deeply for the people that he saw. It's not just, oh, that's tough. It's, I'm brokenhearted for them. But does he only feel for them, church? The answer is no. Does he only feel for them, church? No. He then says to his followers, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what do you do? Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. When you talk to God, what's another word for talking to God, church? It's prayer. Jesus, brokenhearted, and says the solution is prayer. One more example, Luke 19. Jesus is now about to face his execution on a cross, his last days in front of him, and he's outside the city of Jerusalem. And when he sees the city, notice this. When he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, See, a lot of us, we're looking for peace. He says, if you'd only looked and knew what would actually do it, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So what is this that would bring peace? Next slide says this. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In other words, the only one who can fix what you are facing is God. It is broken hearts and bowed heads. Before we say what's next, this is where we begin as the followers of Jesus Christ. Broken hearts and bowed heads. And here's what I want you to see. If this is what Jesus did, it shows us two things. Number one, it shows us, go ahead, a broken heart is evidence you are becoming more like Jesus. If you find yourself being brokenhearted about what you see, this is a beautiful evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. Friend, if you don't find yourself brokenhearted, it does not mean that you're lost. But you need to ask the Lord, why are you not more brokenhearted? And for many of us this morning, that may be where we need to start. God, I want to have a soft heart for what breaks your heart. Give me a broken heart for what breaks your heart. A broken heart is evidence you're becoming more like Jesus. And a prayerful response declares that God is the ultimate answer. That he can do what only he does. He can fix what ails your and my city. Now, I want to get real practical. Some of you are saying, okay, so broken heart, bowed heads. I don't know how to pray. Okay, let me give you a real quick one. Are you ready? Four things, how to pray. This is for everyone here. And by the way, I'm going to ask you to get into this because in August, for the entire month of August, we're going through a season of prayer and fasting as a church. Because we don't just want to preach this, we want to live this. So how to pray. Just remember the acrostic pray. It's in the text, by the way. This is what Nehemiah does. Number one, when you pray, you begin with praise. In verse five, Nehemiah says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandment. He begins with praise. Now, why praise? Let me tell you what it's not. Praise is not to stroke God's ego. He's not up there going, you know, I could really feel better about myself. Just, just, just make me feel better. That's not what praise is. Praise is not about God's ego. Praise is about you recognizing the great one to whom you are asking for help. Here's the reality. 
God is a good God. Amen. But I need him to be more than good. I need him to be great and powerful. A good God who sympathizes but has no power to fix is no God who can help us. We need a powerful God. Praise reminds us that the God you pray to is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. Begin with praise. The R is repent. He then says something curious. He doesn't simply say, God, forgive the people of Israel, the Jerusalem Cityites. Notice what he says in verse 6 and 7. He says, I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He is confessing personally because, here's the thing, so long as you say it's someone else, So long as you recognize only the sin of others, we will continue to have hard hearts. But listen, listen, listen. When you know that God has forgiven you, we will become more forgiving towards those around us. We praise, we repent, and then we ask. The A is ask. And this is what he does in verses 8 through 11, leading up to his final thing where he says to God, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. So give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who's this man? It's the king. He's asking God, I'm going to go before him. I'm going to make a bold request. We're going to talk about it next week. But help me, God. If you don't know what to say, simply say, help me, God, and he will be able to figure out the rest. And then the last one is the why, the yield, meaning do what God says. In the next chapter, when he has faced a fearful situation and he doesn't know how to handle it and he's scared of what to do, he simply does what God has told him to do. You say how to pray. Praise, repent, ask, and yield. Now, last thing I want you to see, and then we're going to shut it down for today, but here's the thing. Before we go to what's next, we've got to deal with what's now. Here's the last thing. Well, how long do we pray about it? How long? A couple days, a couple hours? How how long do we pray? He makes this interesting little statement, doesn't he? He says, put this up. For some days, for some days, it makes us think, well, maybe from Sunday to Thursday he prayed. But notice this. This is, in verse 1, we're told, in the month of Kislev. Kislev is November to December. He goes before the king, we're told, in chapter 2, in the month of Nisan. They make a great vehicle. You're like, that just bombed. Okay. (laughs) Hey, I tried. Look, it can't all be gold. Here we go. Now, watch this. That's in April. So November to December or or December to April is four to five months. Night and day, night and day, night and day, night and day. Here's the reality. Your prayer life will reflect what actually breaks your heart. Isn't that interesting? When you're genuinely brokenhearted over something, you will pray over it and you'll say, God, help me, help me, help me. A friend of mine once said, and I'm sure you've heard this phrase as well, If God answered every prayer you've prayed over the last month, how many people would be saved and how many people would be made whole? That's not to beat us down, but it's rather to say, oh God, before we say what's next, would you give us broken hearts and bowed heads, not lip service? And here's the reality for many of us. It's just kind of like, yeah, I don't care. I would beg you, if you are not stirred by the desire to pray to God, if he is not, if you do not have this hunger to speak to him, that the first prayer you pray today is, God, 
Give me a hunger for more of you. Help me to desire to be in your presence. Break my heart for what breaks yours so that I will bow my head and ask you to do what only you can do. Because that's where revival begins. Where are we going? Well, the first thing is we're going to bow our heads a whole lot as a church. And over the next month and a half in particular, we are going to dedicate to serious crying out to God as we move into the future because, because while I believe God has beautiful plans for this sweet church, it is only by his power that anything good will happen. Amen?